Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to an Amber Day, the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm Amber. (laughs) I'm your host, Amber Fisher. And this is Daniel Fisher. Say hi, Daniel. Hello, everyone. Hello. So um, I thought that it might be interesting to do a podcast where we talk a little bit about the partner's perspective of infertility. Uh, Daniel and I, of course, as, as you all who have been listening for a long time know, went through a very long battle with infertility before we were able to um, have our son, Calvin. And I've always wanted to have him on the podcast. I'm very nervous. I'm not sure he has wanted to be on the podcast, but uh, I think it's it's always been interesting to me to hear the male perspective on different things. So I know some of you will probably be interested, especially if you're going through infertility and you're wondering maybe how your husband or partner is feeling about the situation. Because as a woman, we can take so much onto ourselves with guilt and shame and all these feelings of embarrassment about, you know, our lack of ability to conceive and all that. So I thought it would be interesting to just have a discussion. So that's what we're going to do. Great. Great. Um, so before I do that, let me, let me just introduce Daniel and tell y'all a little bit about him, or maybe I'll let you talk about yourself. Oh, yay. My favorite thing. So, uh, Daniel is, well, another reason I wanted to bring Daniel on the podcast is because Daniel is now uh, helping me with our business. So he's like part of the. I was going to say he's one of the faces of the business, but he's no. he's part of the um, he's part of the day to day operations. So Daniel runs kind of the financial side and business side of the business, taking some of those things off of my plate because I just can't do it all. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so some of you may start to get to know him as he transitions into that role. Um, and he'll be, be like taking over some duties for, from some of my other, um, assistants in the past. So that'll be cool. And he also is the full-time caretaker for our son, Calvin, a noble act Sure is. Yes, I did it. For, <laughs> I did it for quite a while myself, and uh, that's a job. So, uh, so yeah, we are really lucky because we get to do something that we always wanted to do, which is run a business together, and um, spend a lot of time together. So that's fun. Okay. And I get to stay home all the time. Yes, that is nice. I don't have an eight to five anymore. Yeah, that's great. Previously, what did you do previously, Dan? Uh, so I went to school for engineering. And I did that for a number of years and uh, went back to school for my MBA and did not use it at all he because sure then the pandemic hit and I lost my engineering job. Uh, now you do get to use your MBA. I guess so. Running my small business MBA. My business. Uh, my empire. 
as they say. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, so so let's get into today's topic, right? Let's talk about infertility. So why don't you tell everybody um, how we met? But they'd want to know that. You and by the way, if y'all see me drinking this, oh, for those of you watching on YouTube, yes, this is product placement. Although I'm not, I'm not officially sponsored by Poppy Soda, but if Poppy Soda, if you're listening, if you're listening, um, I will definitely do a deal with you. I love this stuff, guys. It's really good. I love soda. Used to be a huge Diet Coke addict, and um, I like the bubbles. So this is really good because it has, um, very, it's very low in carbs. It uh, has the bubbles and it has some prebiotics in it too. So I don't know. I just think they're really good. The other ones I like are Zevia, but I, I have been really in love with these poppy ones lately. So if you see me sipping on that, that's what this is. There so tell go. us how we met. Okay. I can't believe you haven't told them yet. Um, so we met in college. Yes. And we had the... the uh, What's the word? Glorious first encounter in a car <laughs> on the way to a speech and debate retreat. Glorious first encounter. Yes. That's accurate. Yes. Um, so I remember that very vividly when I met, I remember the moment I met him because it, it, I guess it felt significant, although I don't, think I knew that at the time, but I remember the moment we met, which, you know, I don't know. Do you remember? Well, it the... was, yes. No, I mean, do I you remember. remember the moment that you met a lot, like other people? Oh. Like, I usually don't remember the moments uh, when I meet certain From people. college? A few. A few. But I remember when we got together, or when we first met at mm-hmm. that, you know, got in the car, the carpool and everything. Yeah, that's probably my most vivid memory of mm-hmm. when I first met anybody from college. Yeah, it's which weird. is weird. That is weird when you think about it, right? It's like it—it it was a very significant moment, I guess, and like our brains knew it was significant, but not but really why us. yet. Um, so anyway, we both we both joined the speech and, speech and debate, debate team. team, which it's a great foundation for your relationship. Yes, you know, get highly two recommend. Debaters. Yeah, a lot of. So then, fast forward, we got married in 2011, and do you remember when we kind of decided to start, like thinking about kids? Like, do you remember how that happened? Not really. Do you? Yes, I do. Okay, um, I remember. I'll just say what I do remember. Um, I remember being in Lubbock, and I we knew that we weren't ready, like necessarily. Let's start now. But we knew it would be coming up soon because we had only been married a year, maybe a year and a half at that point. Mm-hmm. And we were like, well, we wanted to wait a couple of years, get used to each other first, um, build our lives, and then introduce the child into that life. Um, but we also somehow just knew, maybe because of the PCOS diagnosis, that it was going to be a process. And so we knew that we should just get started and make sure that everything was working correctly, I guess. Yeah. So I guess you, you probably don't remember this, but when we were living in Lubbock, I went to see a infertility specialist, like a, um, the doctor it was an tech. IVF clinic. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of to ask them like, Hey, is there anything that I can do for, for my PCOS? Like I thought maybe there might be like a, I had heard of like ovarian drilling. And so I thought maybe that they could do like a procedure on me. I also was a little concerned. I thought I might have endometriosis. So 
anyway, I went and of course they were like, no, there's nothing we can do. Um, but then they, they wanted to, uh, the doctor asked, um, to take a biopsy because it had been a while since I had a period. And, uh, that was my first biopsy experience, which I've spoken about before was extremely traumatic, but, um, because of what I was kind of telling him about my whole situation, he warned me and he said that it would probably take a long time to get pregnant. And so that I should, you know, start right away or start early. He said, I remember because he's like, it's probably going to take you a while. So that was discouraging, but yeah, I remember that also kind of nice that he warned us because I, w- I don't know about you all, but I always appreciate it when people tell me the truth. I don't really like to be coddled or like, I don't know. I just, I just prefer people to be straight up with me. So, uh, yeah, don't try to pass off the best case scenario as what's most likely to happen. Right. Unless it's actually true, but rarely is. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about your experience with all the like testing and stuff that we had to go through. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Uh, it was just scary mm-hmm. was predominantly the emotion I had, the uncertainty of everything and not just not knowing how the test results are going to happen. Like it's, it's much more than that. It's that plus, um, what does this mean? You know, you get introduced to a lot of really big, scary words and a lot of big, scary names of medicines and procedures and, um, we're not doctors. We're not trained. We don't know what all of this means. Like we can Google it like any other normal person with internet access, but we're not going to understand it Mm -hmm. as much as we want to, I guess. Um, so yes, worry and fear and frustration with all that was probably the predominant emotion that I felt. Um, and I just didn't like to see you go through it. It didn't feel fair. It didn't feel right. Um, and there's nothing I could do about it. Yeah. So that helplessness also kind of sucked. Do you feel like it was harder because like, all the issues were really my issues. Like you, there was no male factor issues here. Yeah. Yeah. Even after I got tested and or had my sperm tested and everything came back normal for me, count, mobility, whatever. Um, that almost made it worse. Motility. Motility. Sorry. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. It's made about it worse. how fast they move. Um, yeah. It just made it worse because not only because I didn't blame you, but I felt there were many times where you thought that I blamed you. And I didn't. 
And I couldn't convince you that I didn't. Mm. And it, it wasn't your fault. Nobody knew. Nobody could have predicted. There's no, like, genetic test that we run on infants to see if, or infant girls, to see if they're going to have PCOS or not. Yeah. I mean, what what's interesting to me about that now is that I lived for so many years with a lot of, I carried a lot of shame about having PCOS and felt a lot like it was my fault because there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with the way that I'm eating. And that um, at, at first I discovered nutrition and had this like, you know, great epiphany that like, wow, food can impact your health and your hormones. And I had never made that connection before, you know, so that was exciting. But then as the years kind of wore on and I continued to have issues and I just couldn't seem to like figure it out or stick to things long enough, maybe I, I, um, I started to really blame myself a lot and feel like a lot of the PCOS was sort of my fault. And I know a lot of my clients feel this way too, that they're like, you know, it's, it's my internal laziness or whatever that's, that means that that's causing the PCOS. But recently I had some genetic testing done and that took a, like just took so much guilt and shame off of me that I just like didn't even realize I was still carrying. Cause of course I don't believe that PCOS is any person's fault. Um, you know, I do think that that the food that we eat can either contribute to symptoms or can help reduce symptoms. But the fundamental issue with developing the condition in the first place, I I don't think is anyone's fault. Um, But that's always easier to tell other people than to tell yourself, right? So when I got the genetic testing and I found that I actually have, you know, a couple of genetic variants that are, um, you know, trending towards insulin type issues and to um, difficulties processing um, extra hormones and things like that, I realized like, wow, a lot of my, a lot of my issues, not that they were predestined or predetermined, but those predispositions were always there. And uh, my life from this point on is not so much about saying like, let me, um, cure this condition or this issue, but rather like, how can I manage this so that it doesn't, so that these genes don't express in my life to whatever extent I can. Um, and I'm still figuring that out for myself. Um, but it took a lot of guilt off of me because yeah, I mean, I did feel for a long time that, that it was my, you know, that, that I wondered if like you, maybe wished that that you hadn't you know married me or something because like if you had known the only thing i wished was that you didn't have the issues yeah i never once thought that this was any kind of deal breaker or grounds for breaking up or anything like that like if you had known before before we got like deeply involved because obviously we knew that we kind of knew that things might be an issue when I first got diagnosed with PCOS and we were still dating at the time. But like, if you had known before we ever started dating that I might have issues with infertility or that I for sure was going to, do you think that you would have made a different decision? No, I really don't. Do you feel like most men feel that way? I mean, would you say that 
that's probably pretty consistent with. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of different options out there for, you know, having children. If you're a man who, who has that as a goal in life, you don't pick the wife based on what you think the children are going to be like. You pick the wife because you like the, the woman, you know, you marry her for her, not for what you think the kids are going to be. So while I always wanted to have children once I was grown and married, I, I knew that there were even, even if we couldn't have it biologically, that there were going to be options, you know, expensive options. Sure. But options, <laughs> All the options with I mean, this are expensive, right? Yeah, <laughs> adoption, surrogacy, mm -hmm. even fostering, you mm -hmm. know, can be a lengthy, if not financially burdensome process, mm -hmm. then emotionally. Um, but, you know, those are sacrifices that I and I think most men that really want to have kids would make. So... Um... What about when, okay, so after, after we went to the f clinic the first time, we were sort of, you know, they were kind of pushing us towards IVF. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah. And we were debating whether they were pushing us there because they thought it was the right thing for us or were they pushing us there because that's just where they made their money. Yeah. And we were at that time young. We and were, poor. I think... 24 years old or yeah we just moved here to san antonio from Lubbock. yeah we'd only been here like a year or something so, so maybe 25 um we were we were pretty young and honestly uh no i mean no offense at all to anybody who has kids at that age or younger i mean everybody has a different path but for us we weren't like particularly interested in having kids at that time it was more like we just felt like we were going through the processes that we need to, we needed to go through, I guess. Like, yeah. If we had gotten pregnant, great, but we weren't in any rush. Yeah. That's how it felt. And then that's when I, um, and ended up getting diagnosed with cancer was soon after that. Yeah. And so then it was sort of like, Oh, this is why they recommended IVF. You know, I, I didn't quite understand, I guess that with a history of having hyperplasia as many times as I had had, that that could develop into cancer. Like I had been told that it might, right. But, um, but that it was a very, very rare thing. And most of my doctors acted like there was no risk at all for me. Um, it was only that one IVF doctor who was like, yeah, things might be a little tricky. You know, you might want to do IVF, uh, because I'm a little worried about this issue. And I, we, we just kind of thought that they were pushing us because they wanted our money. And of course, extremely emo or like financially difficult to make IVF work. Yeah. It's going to be north of $25,000 in most cases. Mm -hmm. So how did you feel about that? About the fact that then we were like kind of roped into this whole expensive process in order to just have the chance to have a child. Well, at that point, you're talking about just a couple of years ago, right before we had Calvin. Sure. At that point, it was our last option. Mm -hmm. Well, not last option, but last good option, I guess, to have a child that was half you, half me. Mm -hmm. um, so I was all on board. 
So before we went through IVF, this was 2018 that we went, we finally did go through IVF. We went through like several years where we kind of took a break from, yeah, maybe not several years, but a few years where we took a break from the whole infertility, fertility treatment process. At that point we had done like, uh, you know, Clomid and tried naturally and, um, I don't remember if I had done Famara yet or if that yeah, was later. No, you had. So we took we took some time off. Um, tell them a little bit about like what was going through your head at that time. I had kind of given up a little bit. Um, not given up totally on having kids, but at the time you were working for um, a foster care mm-hmm. child placement company. And so I was kind of starting to make myself get used to the idea that maybe that, that was our path. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe fostering to adopt or, or something like that, because I just didn't see financially how we were going to come up with 25 grand. Yeah. That was like such a huge blow. And I think, Obviously, I think looking back, I feel like we over worried about that because now I realize how much they, you know, they want you to go through, like they want you to pay for IVF. So a lot of these clinics are like willing to work with you on um, helping you find financing and there are a lot of loan programs and and things like that. But at the time it just, it felt so out of reach, you know, this idea that we'd have to save this huge amount of money. And, uh, and we didn't want to ask people for it and everything. So, um, it just, I remember just being kind of like burned out of the whole process. And Mm -hmm. we did a lot of like back and forth about whether we even wanted kids at that point. Yeah. Or yeah. Well, I think we both still wanted kids, but it was, is it worth it? Is it worth going through any more failure rejection? Mm Mm-hmm bad news. Yeah. We sort of just started to feel like, or at least I did that. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure that all of it was worth it. Like I wasn't sure that I wanted to, um, to put all this money on the line that potentially wouldn't go anywhere. And I was trying to come to terms with the idea of like, well, if I didn't have any children, like, could I still be happy? Like, would I still have a fulfilling life? And I remember having conversations about that with you and we sort of, I mean, at least this is how I remember it. You tell me if I'm wrong, but I remember us coming to terms with the idea that like, okay, if we didn't have kids, like we could still be happy. And we had, we we were coming up with like dreams of what our life would look like if we were child free. Yeah. You know, a lot more travel and Mm -hmm. a lot more freedom to do adult things. And we'd still go to Disney world. Yeah, we love Disney. <laughs> but um, but I think, too, there was always this, like, element of sadness to those conversations. Always. Too. It's like, you know, the um, whenever I'd see the intro to Up Ugh. come on, I mean, I would just Ugh. sob. Like, sob. Because, you know, anyone who's gone through infertility, that's... I don't know anyone who happy. hasn't seen that intro yet at this point. But if you are that one person in this world who hasn't seen it, go watch it, but bring a box of tissues. I remember like a lot of things would make me cry. 
um, there was this Christmas commercial. Uh, Elton John was in it. It was for pianos. It was an advertisement oh for gosh. pianos. That's stupid and, commercial. Yes. And it was like Elton John, like going back in time. But the part that made me like sob was when he was like a little boy and he comes down the stairs and his mom and grandma had bought him a piano. Oh my God. I'm going to cry thinking about it now. <laughs> Such a stupid commercial. It's so sad. The nostalgia is so sad. Um, but yeah, like I think we were we were just very much like going through a grieving process with it. I mean, we went through all the stages. Like we were just we'd had we went through anger, at least I did. Yeah. Anger, sadness, denial. Denial. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about when we did finally decide to go through IVF. Okay. Tell me your experience of that process. Um, I was probably a little hesitant just cause I didn't know if it would work. And I thought maybe this will just be a waste of time and money again. Um, but at the same time, I still really wanted to have our child or children. Um, so yeah, I was on board with taking that risk. Do you remember like the process of everything? Vaguely is kind of blurry. Um, I remember you got the recommendation from your OBGYN at the time to work with that clinic, the new clinic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, we kind of felt like it was, well, this is going to be our, our last chance. We're in a better situation financially. Um, it's been a couple of years. Um, you'd had your cancer and then we, you'd had it taken care of. Um, and so this was our, our window. Would well, you remember like going to all those appointments and everything? Like, what was that like for you? Uh, it was a combination of exciting and really annoying. Because twice a week, yeah, I would go with you to the doctor's office, and we'd have to check in and wait, and then talk to them. Yeah, you know, it was a process, and it happened, you know, a lot. Um, and then the shots at home. Yes, you know, he did all my shots for me. That was fun. All except my trigger shot, which. My lovely uh, friend Gabby did for me. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it had to be, you know how the, the trigger shot has to be, like, timed perfectly. It has to be exactly at this certain time. Yeah. Um, in preparation for your retrieval. And <laughs> and he was, I was at work and he was working. And so I had to take it to work. And then I could, I don't know, I tried, guys, but I could not give myself shots. I just couldn't do it. So um, Gabby <laughs> did that for me. So, uh, Gabby has been on the podcast before a couple of times. If you guys want to go listen to, to podcast, she's a good friend of mine. Um, yeah, that was a lot, all those shots and stuff. I, I feel like for me, the shots leading up to the retrieval were not so bad. It was like the progesterone shots afterwards really? that were awful. <laughs> Yeah. To me, it was just shots. Yeah. I wasn't getting any of them, so uh, it didn't matter what was in the syringe from my standpoint. Yeah. 
but especially, so we did, let's see, well, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but we did the one retrieval. Do you, yeah. so I was kind of like out obviously right. under anesthesia. So how, how did that, how did that go? I don't know. I wasn't there. You weren't there for the retrieval? Well, I was in the waiting room. They didn't let me in the room oh, with you. I don't know why I thought you were there. Mm-mm. Huh. So I was just in the waiting room waiting for news, you know, like any other surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it took longer than they told me it was going to take. Um, and then they wouldn't tell me anything about it until you had fully woken up from the anesthesia. Um, but I remember we were really happy with the number of eggs they were able to retrieve. Mm-hmm. I forget the exact number, 22 or something. 18. 18. Okay. 18 that were 18 and then 18 that were mature. No, 12 of them were mature or something. And yeah. Then, I forget the exact yeah. numbers. I used to know them all by heart. I know, but it was kind of depressing. Like as we went along to see that number, just drop, 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 you know, we started with 18, but only 12 of them were able to be, were mature enough to be fertilized, but then only 10 of them actually fertilized normally, but then only eight survived to this point. Only five of them survived to that point. Yeah, I think in the end we had six that got like frozen. I thought it was five. Either either, way. either five or six that got like frozen and actually tested, genetic mm-hmm. tested. And then after the genetic testing, only two were chromatically two were normal. normal. That was really hard. Yeah. That we started with 18 and we ended up with two. I remember being very naive about IVF before we went through it and thinking like, oh, you, you do IVF and you do an egg retrieval and then you'll get all these eggs and you can just like freeze them. And then, you know, whenever you're ready to have a sibling, you know, you just try another one. Yeah. Right. Um, and my fertility doctor explained to me that it's actually pretty normal to only get a couple of genetically normal embryos. After retrieval, especially for some reason after the first retrieval, he said that it's much more common to have like a poorer response to that first um, stimulation than like maybe to a second one. But that it's also extremely normal to only get a couple of good quality eggs. And that was, uh, or embryos, I'm sorry. That was like kind of a blow because, you know, I mean... It was naive when I look back on it, but I was thinking like, okay, we would do this retrieval and then we'd get to like have siblings and stuff on ice. Just pull them out when we were ready for them, right? Yeah. No, I thought that too. That's really not how it goes. Um, so yeah, so we, we, it came down to two. Yeah. We had a, a female embryo and a male embryo and the female one looked better. Yeah. They, they grade them. After they've grown for a few days mm-hmm. and yeah, the female graded out better than Calvin. Calvin. Yeah. Um, so we went with her first in the first mm-hmm. implantation. Yep. Cause we we're like, well, let's start with the best chance. Yeah. That's what they recommended. They were like, you know, use your, this one's your best chance. So let we'll do that. And that was a blow too, because like when when they're telling you that this is your best chance, but then the best chance doesn't work out. Well, yeah. And, and let's back up just a little bit to the actual implantation. Oh yeah. These things are microscopic. 
Right. So what they do is they, they put it in a little pipette, but they put an air bubble in, in the pipette first, and then they put the embryo, and then they put another little air bubble. Mm-hmm. That way, when they're looking at the ultrasound and they they inject, is that the right word? Um, the embryo in, they can't see the embryo on the ultrasound, but they can see the two air bubbles. And then they check the pipette, I guess, just to make sure. You can see the embryo with the naked eye, but it's like the tip of a, the head of a pin. Or, it's yeah, very small. It's something crazy. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the details now. Um, but the, she didn't, she was still on the pipette, right? The the embryo during the first retrieval, like it, like she wasn't in. She it didn't come. They did it. Did didn't get transferred. So yeah, for the some embryo reason, didn't come out. And so this whole time, I'm wondering, like, on the second attempt, did she come out then, or did she? I don't know. This is weird. Fall on the floor. During because the way they did it was they have the microscope and and the embryo in one room and then the re, the implantation is happening in the room next to it so there's there was probably about thirty feet that somebody had to walk you know holding this thing mm-hmm. like is that even possible I don't know but I was thinking like well was she even implanted if she was our best chance and she didn't take but the second one Calvin did. He wasn't as rated as good. Well, the thing the thing that was different, though, between our first transfer and our second was that I had a different level of progesterone. Yes. I had more. And I think that that is what made the difference. Because um, that's always been my issue, is not having enough progesterone. And I just feel like... Well, and Dr. Neal um, gave you what was it like four extra hours or something then or was it or 12 extra hours? Yeah, it was 12 extra hours. 12 extra hours for it to like hit your system. To like take effect. Yeah. Take effect. Like there, he, I remember talking to him about that and he's like, you know, I've had pretty good success with this, but it's just purely like mm-hmm. a trial. You know, there's no studies on this or, or any kind of data collection as to whether or not this actually does work or not. But in the, three times I've tried it before it worked well. To me, it made a lot of sense because mm-hmm. progesterone has always been the thing that saved me. So progesterone is what saved me from cancer. Progesterone has always made me feel good. Um, and I, I, I felt like I needed more too. So I think that's what made the difference between the first and the second one. But also the first one was so close to the retrieval I was a lot more stressed at that time of the year because I was helping. It was Valentine's Day and I always help my mom. She's a florist. And so there was a lot of stress on me around that time. And plus, I just, we knew that was our, it was almost like psyched myself out because I knew that was our best chance. So Mm -hmm. I was more stressed. Yeah. And Um, when we went for number two, they actually told us, you know, the odds aren't great, but, you know, we have the embryo. We might as well try. Yeah. Was kind, of, a, was kind of the attitude that they had. We had a special meeting with our doctor who was sweet. He would he met with us, you know, didn't charge us for it, but met with us for like an hour just to kind of like, you know, he had no answers, but he, he knew that it's important 
when you've gone through this to just kind of talk through what happened. Yeah. Um, and so he did that and he kind of like just answered a lot of our questions. And our biggest question was like, do we even bother with this embryo? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is it worth it? You know, because emotionally we didn't want to go through that again. Um, and we were thinking we were going to need to do another retrieval. So he sort of encouraged us like, yeah, it's, it's still worth trying. And yeah, then we had our, our baby. And we had Calvin. That was him. But, you know. Against all odds. Against all odds. Um, but my pregnancy was very difficult. Oh, yeah. What was that like for you? Oh, that was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you always had some something seemed like was going wrong. You know, whether or not you were bleeding internally or you're spotting and bleeding externally or not just not feeling well. Like, you know, I had a subchorionic hemorrhage. That's what it was. I forgot. It's like a, it's like a, I can uh, picture it on the ultrasound. I couldn't remember what it was called. Yeah. It's like, it's like a bruise inside, but sometimes it's an active, like growing bruise that's when it's a hemorrhage and then sometimes it's like it clots and that's when it's a hematoma um but it's it can endanger the pregnancy especially early on because it can detach the embryo so it was very scary mm-hmm. um and i carried that thing all the way through the pregnancy it yes. came <laughs> it came out uh when i gave birth it was attached to the um umbilical cord which i thought was interesting Oh, I didn't because know that. yeah, at the at the uh, at the anatomy scan, they lost track of it, and they were like, "It's gone," you know. Finally, it's gone. And uh, then when I had Calvin, I read the the report, the pathology report of the placenta, and it said that there was a subchorionic hemorrhage on the um, umbilical cord. Oh, but yeah, fun. Um, so yeah, so that was fun. I was on bed rest most of the pregnancy. For, yeah. Um, uh, and, and subchorionic hemorrhages are common in IVF, which I did not know. Nobody told me that. Um, I wish I would have known that. So if you are planning to go through IVF, you know, you should be prepared that that's something that might happen. And it, it's, it usually works itself out, but like, it's still scary. Um, and then, uh, the other thing that's common, more common in IVF pregnancies and also more common with PCOS is preterm, uh, labor. Mm-hmm. And of course I went into labor at 30 weeks and had my son. Um, 10 weeks early. So, um, 30 weeks, five days. I mean, we could do an entire podcast on what it's like to be a parent of a NICU baby. Oh, fun. Maybe we will. That's great. That's great fun. Everybody should try that sometime. Yeah. Um, that was a lot, but he's fine now. He's happy and healthy and He's a tornado. He thinks every bird says caw. Uh-huh. He thinks every drink belongs to him. Yes. And mm-hmm. anytime something drops or he throws it, it's an uh-oh moment. Oh, uh, yeah. He says uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Even sometimes before it hits the ground. Uh-huh. He hasn't even thrown it yet. <laughs> and he's still saying, he's already saying uh-oh. Or like, I'll go get him in the morning from his crib. And he usually has thrown his pacifier out on the ground because he just can't help himself. He has to throw stuff, you know. And then he, as soon as I come in, he looks at me and he goes, ow, you know, <laughs> to let me know that he had thrown his passy out. And then I'm like, oh, you threw out your passy. Again. 
Would you say that all the things that we went through were worth it? No. Just kidding. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, it was absolutely worth it. I'd do it all again. Um, the financial burden, the emotional burden, it wasn't too high. I think I would do it again, even if Calvin hadn't been the outcome, just because I'm just glad that I that I went through that and saw like what my body could or couldn't do. I always feel like when people give up before IVF, I mean, that's obviously their choice and their decision, but I've never understood that thought process because to me it's like, hey, we have science, modern scientific, you know, interventions and like, if I can find a way to make it work, like I'm going to try it, you mm-hmm. know? So there was never a question for me that I, w- I would do IVF if I had to, but um, yeah. Well, thank you for being on the podcast today, Daniel. Anything that you want to share with any of these people listening, like any words of wisdom for husbands going through this or partners going through this or for the women out there listening? Uh, I guess for the guys, um, forgive your wife, (laughs) um, be extra nice to her. She deserves it. Forgive you. She's, she's going to go through times where she's extra frustrated at you, maybe for no reason that you can discern. Um, she's dealing with a lot. So cut her some slack. <laughs> Love her a little extra. That's probably good advice <laughs> no matter what. Okay. Well, don't go too I far. Would say. <laughs> well, um, that's going to be it for today's podcast. Let's see. Before I wrap up, a couple of things to just remind you all. Um, I did want to tell you that I am currently working on a new um some new courses, some online courses for those going through PCOS and then also for those going through um, IVF. So I'm going to have a, you know, functional approach to PCOS course. I'm going to have a functional approach to um, IVF nutrition course. And those things will be um, available sometime, hopefully this fall. I'm working on them now. And in the meantime, I'm putting my PCOS group on hold for a few months just to kind of give myself time to work on that because I just can't do everything. Um, so look forward to all of that if you are interested in it. And um, the best places you can find me right now are if you follow me on Instagram, Amber Fisher Nutritionist. That's where I'm the most active and I do a lot of writing about these topics and everything. If you have questions for the podcast, I am answering questions now. Uh, So there is in the show notes here, you'll see a link to a Google form where you can ask me questions and I would love to answer your questions. Seriously, I would love them. They don't need to just be nutrition based. If you want to ask me any question, I would love to answer it. Um, I love questions. It'll give her content. Yes. I need content, please. Um, and also on that note, um, if you have a chance, if you're listening to this, um, on Apple or you have an iTunes account, if you wouldn't mind leaving the podcast, a five-star review, it really helps a lot to getting the podcast out to other people and just spreading the word. And I appreciate it greatly. So thank you for that. And uh, we will talk to you all. I will talk to you all next week. Bye.
you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want, and I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.